Why don't I pray and ask the Lord's help because we need it, um, and then we'll jump in. So, Father, thank you so much for, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, even passages like this that are just really hard um, and really difficult to grapple with. Uh, Lord, we recognize that today, and Lord, we recognize that we really need your help with it. Uh, so please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, a few years ago, um, I had to suffer along with Emmy, who went to a conference in uh, Croatia. Um, and, you know, it was, it was tough. It was really tough. You know, her company paid for her to go and paid for a nice hotel on, near the beach. And, you know, Emmy didn't want to go by herself. So I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll go to Dubrovnik with you. That sounds horrible. And we, we rented a car, and for you car enthusiasts, um, it was uh, um, an Alfa Romeo. It was very fun. Um, and while Emmy was at her meetings, I like, just drove around Croatia in the car, and I was like, actually, we're really close to the border of Bosnia and Herzegovina. I think that's how you say it. Uh, and I was like, I've never been, so I'm just going to drive into the nearest big town. Uh, across the border. So I go up to the border, give my passport, drive into to Bosnia, Herzegovina. And the nearest town is a, is a city called Mostar. And so I drove to this town, Mostar, and I didn't really know anything about it until I got there. And when I got there, I found out uh, that during the, the, the Balkan Wars, the, the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 90s, Mostar was actually the battleground. Uh, it was actually the, the most... Um, uh, I think the most, most people uh, died in battle, uh, including civilians, um, on one street, one street in Mostar. And it was, it was amazing. You, you kind of, you walk across this historic bridge that they rebuilt because it got demolished in this war, and you go to this street, and on all the buildings, there's still bullet holes, and there's still like shelled out buildings, and, and all these things, if you look up, that's what you see. But if you look at street level, what you see are people like me, tourists, walking around, licking ice cream cones, and sitting in a cafe having a nice meal, and, and enjoying the peace that is in the land. And it was such a contrast to me uh, to walk down this one street where all the parks that used to be there had become cemeteries. And you read the, the, the death dates of everyone on there, and it, it was all around the same couple weeks of time. All of the, the people about the same age, all of them about 20 years old. And it's just such a contrast of this utter conflict, this, this place. I went into the museum and they described the kind of horrendous battles that, that happened there. And then you walk back out in the street and it's just, it's a time of peace. And it was such a contrast. Well, our passage today, it starts with tremendously restless conflict. Uh, but it ends in rest. It's, it's, the same, it's the same contrast. It's the same thing. And so the question is, how do, you, how do we get there? How do you get there? And I want you to think as we're going through this, is there a restlessness in your life? Is there a conflict in your life? Restlessness is, um, it's the inability to, to rest or to relax in the face of anxiety or fear. So you just can't stop moving, you can't stop acting, you can't stop doing something in, in the face of anxiety or fear. A restless, the restless person is in constant motion or activity. And what Joshua 11 shows us as we look at this, that there's two principles that if we can understand them and actually appropriate them into our lives, they will lead us to rest. 
it won't be instantaneous, okay? It's not like, oh, I heard that today. Great, now I have rest. But if we can appropriate these principles into our lives, what you find out in Joshua 11 is that it will lead you to rest. Um, so here's the two principles. I'm just going to give them to you up front. Uh, number one, those who stand against God are always restless. Those who stand against God are always restless. Number two, those who stand with God find poise and confidence. And in the end, this will be point three, in the end, they're given rest. Uh, So that's what we're going to see. So let's take a look at this together. Um, But like I said, this is hard stuff. So before we jump into these two principles, I said I would address the nature of these passages in Joshua where there's, there's all the killing. Um, One of the reasons many people actually give for not wanting to be a Christian is because of passages like this in the Old Testament. Where like verse 20, it it actually says that they exterminated everyone. And as you read through, it's like, and they defeated them and and they totally defeated them. Uh, What do you do with that? What do you do with a passage where it even says that God himself is the one who led the killing? What do you do with that? Let's be honest. As you read Joshua, what you find is what seems identical. I said this last week, but it seems identical to what you'd call today conquest and perhaps even ethnic cleansing, something that the Bible prohibits everywhere else. So what do we do with it? Well, one solution people try all the time is to say, well, 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 okay, that's cool, but that's the Old Testament. That was God in the Old Testament. Uh, That's not how he is today. Uh, In other words, God acted differently in the Old Testament and required different things in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament today. Uh, There's a big problem with that view, though, um, that God is the same. We actually sang about that, that he never changes. Um, And the the real problem with that is that uh, in the Old Testament, you shall not kill and you shall not steal are the sixth and eighth commandments. And so you can't write it off by saying, well, that's the Old Testament, because the Old Testament itself prohibits killing and stealing. So you can't, you can't just write it off. Uh, both Joshua 11 and the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, they're both in the Old Testament, so you can't reject one without rejecting the other. You can't say, well, I, I can't have Joshua 10 and 11, but I'll, I'll go ahead and have um, Exodus 20. You can't do that. You either reject both or accept both. And I don't think anyone wants to sign up to say that killing and stealing are okay. So I don't think anyone wants to sign up and say, well, we'll just reject everything. And so the real problem here is that God not only allows Joshua and Israel to do precisely what's prohibited in the Ten Commandments, but he actually commissions them to do it. And we saw last week that he fights for them. He defeats them. Now, God forbids this sort of action in the Old Testament and the New Testament for all people for all time. And so when we kill people who have not attacked us, when we take their land, that's theft and murder. Uh, So why is it here? Why is it okay in the book of Joshua? Um, Tim Keller, who's um, a pastor in New York, a a scholar, he explains that uh, there are three all-important differences between the conquest of Joshua from any other military action ever before or since. So in other words, Joshua's actions here are unique in all time in history and are never, ever to be repeated. Why? Well, number one, Keller says that this war, it's not carried out on the basis of race. That's a reason people do this today. Um, We don't even have to dig 
very far into history to find some of the most atrocious acts of that or, or, or travel very far around the world today to find it. Um, but this war is not carried out on the basis of race. In fact, there's two instances we've seen uh, so far, uh, if you've been with us through this whole series, where Canaanites were actually welcomed in. The people that they're fighting were actually welcomed in to the people of God. Rahab, who should have been treated as an outsider for multiple, multiple reasons, is actually welcomed in with her entire family. And if you were here when we talked about Rahab, you, you probably remember the rest of her story. The rest of her story is actually she gets married and she marries an Israelite. So not only is she welcomed in, she's allowed to marry into Israel. But not just any Israelite. She marries a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob, of Judah, of Perez. And her son goes on to be a man named Boaz, who's the great kinsman redeemer of the book of Ruth. That's Rahab the Canaanite, welcomed in. And it doesn't even stop there, because if you read all the way through the line of Jesus, what you find out is that Rahab is right in the middle of it. uh, And in Rahab's line is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Additionally, the Gibeonites, an entire city or region of the Canaanites, they're welcomed in. They're actually welcomed in and they're, they're given a job in the temple in the place where God's presence dwells. So there, this can't be an ethnic cleansing. Uh, number two, this war is not carried out on the basis of imperialistic expansion. God doesn't allow them to plunder for their own gain. There is some plundering that goes on, but it's not for their own gain. What they plunder, they're supposed to take to the temple. And he doesn't allow them to enslave the inhabitants of Canaan. The Gibeonites, they're, they're given a job, they're given a role, but they're not slaves. And so what was normal military action and imperialistic behavior to plunder, to enslave, to rape, was forbidden for Israel. They couldn't do any of those things. Why? Well, because the purpose of the mission was not to become prosperous and powerful, but rather to create a country in which the Israelites were free to worship their God. Because remember, God took them out of slavery where they weren't free to do that. And also, we'll find out uh, that Israel is to be a place of refuge for the foreigner. So they're actually supposed to welcome other races, other, other people in. Uh, and also never to try and expand their borders. The borders that they take are the exact same borders that God gave to their forefather, Abraham. And those are the borders that they take. So they never expand beyond that. Uh, so they weren't like Babylon. They weren't like the Assyrians and later on the Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans. They weren't like any of those nations. So it's not imperialistic expansion. Thirdly, and this is what I alluded to last week, this war is carried out as God's sovereign judgment and through special direct revelation. So God actually speaks to to Moses before and then speaks to Joshua here and says, this is what you're to do. Um, And it's also his sovereign judgment. We talked about this last week, but it's important to cover that same ground again in order to fully grasp the reason For Israel and God's activity in Canaan. Uh, One thing we know from the pages of the Old Testament is that the people living in the land of Canaan, they were extremely morally corrupt. Uh, You learn if you look at Leviticus 18 that in Canaan, it had become acceptable to rape family members. It had become acceptable to rape your own mother, your own sister. That was allowed and accepted in Canaan. More than that, it had become acceptable to molest children. These things are all listed in Leviticus 18. More than that, 
It had become acceptable not only to molest children, but to, to kill them, to sacrifice them to their gods. And I don't think anybody would say, yeah, a nation like that, they should just be left to carry on doing as they please. And so what we have here is all the driving out and all the killing is God exercising just judgment on a whole culture that becomes so morally corrupt that they had deemed it acceptable to rape family members and to molest and kill children. And so one way to look at this is God breaking into the world to bring a stop to it, to bring final judgment on Canaan now rather than at the end, rather than waiting till the last day and allowing all of that to continue. So that's what's happening in the conquest of Joshua. God is bringing just punishment on an entirely morally corrupt people and culture. It's not ethnic cleansing. It's not imperialistic expansion. It's God bringing just punishment on those who become so morally corrupt that it was okay to do horrendous things even to your family members. And along with that, God is finally bringing out his own people out of slavery and wandering into the land that he promised Abraham, their forefather. And in this, there's a biblical principle that emerges in this uh, that started way back in Genesis chapter 3. It runs all the way to Revelation 21. And it's this, that God will always come to save his people. But in order to do that, in order to bring salvation on his people, there must be judgment. There has to be just punishment falling upon wickedness and disobedience. So God will always save his people, but he is just which means there's always justice for wickedness and disobedience. And that's what's happening as Joshua and Israel enter into the promised land, salvation and just punishment. Um, So let me just say this, and then we're going to move on into our text today. Um, We need to read the Bible, uh, really all ancient texts, but especially the Bible, we need to read it with humility. It's really easy for us to look at uh, the thoughts and actions of ancient people and feel like we're superior to them. Um, C.S. Lewis who we quote all the time, um, he calls this idea chronological snobbery. That's the idea that uh, whatever we think today is better than what people thought back then. That's chronological snobbery to say, you know, whatever is, is modern and current is better than what is old. But let's not assume that if we had been born in the time of Joshua, we'd be so much more enlightened as everyone else back then. We all need to realize that we have the advantage of being born into a society that is largely based on Christian values. Even if you think, I don't have a Christian worldview at all, guess what? You do. Because our whole society, all of Western society is built on Christian values, built on the Ten Commandments, a sense of right and wrong. And so we all live in the the fruit of that. Uh, So even if you're not a Christian, you actually have Christian values deeply ingrained into your own worldview. And so when we read books like Joshua, we need to very, very, very humbly remember that our hearts and our inner lives are not fundamentally better than theirs were. We still have the same brokenness. We still have the same tendency to hurt and harm others. We have the same, their sins, their flaws, their actions, they might be different than ours, but they flow from the same rebellious heart. And so we need to be willing to look for the ways in which our hearts are like the people in the narrative. That we actually read this and think, well, how am I like them? How am I broken like them? And not be filled with pride by focusing on ways that were better. So anyway, that's, there's the, there ends the lecture, (laughs) the lecture part of the sermon. 
Uh, and I hope that helps you reconcile at least a little bit of what's happening in the book of Joshua with the conquest. Um, so let's dig in now for our text today. And by the way, I'd be more than happy to answer questions on that later. If you want to catch me after the service over the meal, more than happy to answer any questions on that. Um, but let's dig into our text for today. So remember what Joshua 11 shows us. There's the two principles that if we understand them and appropriate them into our lives, they will lead us to rest. Uh, that those who stand against God are always restless and those who stand with God find poise and confidence. And in the end, they're given rest. So let's take a look at this together. Um, and uh, I think we need a moment of levity. So I have held off now. Uh, we've owned a dog for like nine or ten months. I've held off because I'm obsessed with our dog from making you listen to stories about him. <laughs> nine months is enough. Okay, you can make a baby in nine months. I can hold in dog illustrations for nine months. So a few weeks ago, uh, our dog Berlin uh, had this restlessness that at first we just didn't understand. We're like, what is going on? He would, he would just go to the back door and scratch at it and then go out in the backyard and run to the back gate and then just stand there and look at it. And, and he would just do this over and over again. I'm like, he doesn't need to go to the bathroom. He, he just goes out to the backyard and stares at the back gate. And he had this restlessness. And we didn't understand what was happening until one day we were going somewhere. Um, and we we're bringing the dog. And we we're planning to just hop in the car. So we, at our house, he got the back gate. And our car is parked right there. So we, just, we never put a leash on him. He just goes to the door and gets in the car. He's a good dog. Um, we opened the gate. And um, he was gone. Gone. Like, we couldn't find him anywhere. And we were like, where did he, did he dig into, like, the neighbor's bushes and go into, like, where is our dog? And we started, we looked everywhere. And then Emmy looked down the alley. And uh, this is, that's where he was. That's our neighbor's gate. And, he, and actually, Emmy didn't capture the picture. But actually, when she first saw him, I think his paw was on the, the gate. And um, you see... Our dog, Berlin, has a girlfriend. <laughs> yes. Yes, a girlfriend. Uh, here they are together. Um, this was Friday night. They had a date. Uh, and there they are together. And we realized that this restlessness that he was feeling was that he wanted to see her. Some, we read somewhere that dogs have like a 10-second memory. That, that is not true. He thinks about her all the time. Um, and he would be restless until he saw her. And he was restless. And sadly, like when that first photo was taken, our neighbors had just left to go out of town for 10 days. And uh, thankfully, he is a dog. So after a day or two, he did forget about seeing her. But, um, you know, that's a restlessness. He was feeling this restlessness. And as you read the opening five verses of Joshua 11, you see that Jabin, king of Hazor, he's filled with a restlessness. How's that for a transition? Uh, except for him, it's not to see his girlfriend. It's a restlessness brought about by anxiousness for Joshua and his army. And it seems in these first five, five verses of chapter 11, Jabin can't sit still. His name actually means something like ability or intelligence. And his strategy matches his name. He functions as the organizer of an unknown number of other kings, all in the north of Canaan. And so Jabin, the able one, the intelligent one, is restless. He's restless in his ability, so much so that, look at verse 4. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. 
Now, if you happen to know your Old Testament, that phrase will stick out to you like a sore thumb. There was another time long ago before this when that phrase was used to describe the future inhabitants of this land. Do you remember it? It wasn't to the Canaanites. No, no, no. It was used to describe the nation that would come from Abraham. It was used to describe the Israelites. Back in Genesis 22, verse 17, God says this to Abraham. I will surely bless you. And this is, he's actually telling him about the land. And he says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Well, now there's an army with horses and chariots, a technology far more advanced than Israel, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And the author takes time to deliberately explain in detail the restless action of Jabin and then the size and scope and the advanced technology of this great army. And he does this all to to make one simple point, one key point, that based on size, strength, and technology, Joshua and his army of wanderers can't win the battle. They are outsized and outmatched. He's up against a nation that has an army, not just a nation, an army as numerous as the sand and the seashore. Now, what does all that show us? Well, it shows us this, that wherever God seeks to build his kingdom, there will be opposition to his purposes. Wherever he seeks to build his kingdom, there's going to be opposition to his purposes. And this is clear from the opening pages of scripture all the way through to the end, that wherever God is at work, there will be those, both spiritual and human, who stand in opposition to his work. And the character of that opposition is always restless. There's always a restlessness with it. A restlessness to muster up as much strength as possible. And this is what Jabin does. This is what the spiritual forces of evil and darkness do. And this, I mean, what does Paul say in Ephesians? Uh, In chapter 6, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Even more than that, what does Peter say? He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So restlessness that's there. Not only is this what Javan does, not only is it what the spiritual forces do, but it's actually what all men and women do who stand in opposition to God. It's what you and I do when we stand in opposition to God and his purposes here on earth and in our lives. This is what we do anytime we say, my will be done, rather than thy will be done. We actually become a flurry of restless activity, working hard to amass as much strength as possible in order to stand our, our ground against God. I mean, think about it. Think about it. If you're, if you're not yet a Christian, isn't this perhaps what you're doing? Building up in your own mind your intellectual argument against against God or against his very existence, or even building, maybe building a lifestyle that so excludes God that he has absolutely no place in your life. How could you let him in? Restlessly building your intellectual or emotional or practical case in opposition to God, to his purposes, even, even rejecting his very existence. Isn't that what we do? But perhaps deep down, you know this to be true. You know that you'll only find rest when you rest from building your opposition against him. What about for the Christian? Of course, you can stand in opposition to God and his purposes in your life, too. We don't escape from this if you're a Christian. Uh, maybe it's a calling that he has for you. 
Maybe it's a hard season he's asking you to walk through. Maybe it's a treasured sin that you don't want to give up. Uh, St. Augustine is the fourth century church father. Um, He's famous for praying a a prayer early on in his Christian life that went something like this. uh, Lord, make me chaste, make me pure. But not yet. (laughs) Maybe that's you. Either way, Christian or not, the words of Psalm 62, they might be just what you need to speak to your own heart. You actually just need to, to say this to your own heart. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Yes, my soul. Now you're telling yourself this. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Listen, wherever there is opposition to God, you will find an inescapable restlessness. And that restlessness can only be put to rest when you rest in God alone rather than oppose him. And perhaps that explains yours. Well, that leads us then to point two. Those who stand with God find poise and confidence. Now, I want you to contrast Jabin with Joshua. Uh, Where Jabin is filled with restlessness, Joshua is filled with poise. Whereas restlessness is the inability to remain calm in the face of anxiety or fear, poise is the ability to remain calm in spite of it. And remember what Joshua is up against. An army as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as technologically advanced as can be in the ancient world. And yet look at the contrast in verse 7. It just describes this vast army with all its technology. Verse 7. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. Okay, hold on. Did you see that? Let me, I'm going to read it again because you should have all gasped when I said this. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. Joshua and his puny wandering army with no technology attacked the army as vast as the sand on the seashore with chariots and horses. Why would he do that? Why is Joshua not in a panic? Why is he not restless? Well, we skipped verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. Because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Joshua is filled with poise and confidence in spite of the massive army because he knows that he stands with God and his purposes. And so rather than trusting in the strength of man, in his own strength or in the strength of his army, Joshua trusts in what God and his word what God says to him in his word. Now, I don't want us to get the idea that this was all of a sudden like a light bulb moment for Joshua, because it wasn't. And we know this if you've been here through this whole series. How does Joshua get to this point of trust? Well, remember the great theme that's come up over and over and over and over again throughout our study of Joshua, that strength and courage don't just show up in the moment. Strength and courage are cultivated over time by planting little seed after little seed after little seed after little seed. And when you do that over time, you find you are the kind of person who is strong and courageous. And in this case, when you trust the word of the Lord, little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit over time, you find you become the kind of person who, when you're facing an army as vast as the sand on the seashore, and God tells you to go and attack them, you go and do it. 
You're filled with poise and strength and courage beyond explanation. This isn't the first time the word of the Lord is given to Joshua. Three times in chapter one, remember? What does God say? Be strong and courageous. Three times. In chapter three, God's word is given to Joshua to cross the Jordan at flood stage. And Joshua did it. In chapter five, God told him to circumcise the whole army before going off to battle. A horrible, horrible strategy. And Joshua obeyed. In chapter 6, strangely, God told Joshua, instead of attacking Jericho with all their might, he said, hey, what I want you to do is walk around for seven days and blow some trumpets. And Joshua obeyed. In chapter 7, God told Joshua to weed out the sin in the camp. It would have been easier just to brush it under the rug and just move on, but Joshua obeyed. In chapter 8, God told Joshua to take his entire army and attack Ai, even though he probably only needed a few thousand men, and Joshua obeyed. In chapters 9 and 10, he's obedient to keep his own word to the Gibeonites, and so seed after seed after seed after seed of obedience to God's word now all adds up to Joshua facing the largest and strongest army he's ever seen, And not only does Joshua prepare for battle, he goes on the attack. And he's able to do it with such poise because time after time after time after time, he has planted seeds of obedience to God's word. In other words, he stood with God rather than opposition to him. And time after time after time, the Lord has fulfilled his word to Joshua and to his army. You see it as you read on uh, in the text. We're not going to dig into all of that. It says several times, uh, it says it in verse 9 and verse 12 and verse 15 and verse 23, that Joshua did exactly as the Lord commanded him or to Moses. And the result is that Joshua completely defeats his enemies. But notice how, and there's only a hint, it's critical that we see this. Notice again what God tells Joshua to do in verse 6. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. And then, I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, no, no, thanks. I'll take the horses and the chariots because that will make my army the technologically advanced one. Thank you very much. I can build my strength. But look what Joshua does, verse 9. Joshua, Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. And so here it is once again, obedience Even when it's the exact opposite of the advice the world would give you, the best military strategy would be to take the horses and the chariots because that would add strength. Why does God tell Joshua to do this? And then why does he do it? Well, it's because for Joshua, the Lord is his strength. The Lord is his strength. You see, we tend to think, okay, big battle coming up here. You know, or in your life, big challenge coming up here. I better get I better get all the strength I can together. Let me try and build up the strongest, you know, army, whatever that is for you, the, the strongest one that I can. Because God needs my strength. No, he doesn't. He just doesn't. He needs your weakness. He needs your obedience. He just needs you to show up in your weakness, in your feebleness, and then he shows up in his strength. 
It means you actually, listen, if you're a Christian, here's what this means. It means you, you get to show up in any situation in all of your weakness, all of your feebleness, all of your brokenness. And God shows up with his strength. So stop trying to build your army. All you have to say is, God, here's my obedience. I'm here in all my weakness, and I cannot wait to see what you do in your strength. And it's because, well, it's because of what the Apostle Paul says. He says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. It's that when we're weak, we are strong. And that's what it is to be a Christian, by the way. And this is what Joshua does in the rest of the chapter, recounts his decisive victory after victory after victory, all of them, by the way, without the strength of chariots and horses. All of them with the strength of the Lord. I asked before if you had a restlessness, if you had a challenge. Is that how you show up? In power, with strength, or with obedience and humility? Here's the thing. The latter is the stronger. That's the stronger way. Obedience and humility. Um, One other note about this that I think most of us will find helpful. In this passage, God seems to work both fast and slow. Um, At times really fast, at times really slow. Um, And at the start, in the first battle, God works really quickly. But then as you read on, uh, go to look at verse 18. Verse 18 says that Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. And so sometimes God works really fast. And sometimes he works really slow. And we have to remember that though the pace of Joshua seems to move like it all happened over one hot summer, the conquest took years. Most scholars think it took five to seven years. This was a long grueling, demanding process. And before they even started it in Exodus 23, God actually told them, get this, he told them, you're going to have the land, but you're only going to have it little by little. And this is so important for us today to get this because we live in a world of Amazon Prime and instant downloads. I mean, how, I, I, I get frustrated anytime I order something and it's not there the next day. We think that something's only good if it comes fast and immediately. And what do we do? We, we put that on God. Surely God's faster than Amazon. And yeah, sometimes he is. Sometimes he works fast. But, but honestly, just look at your own life. More often than not, he works slow. And he does that because he wants to call out of you and, and draw out of you endurance and faithfulness and obedience. And so listen, God's power works among us, not necessarily in quick flashes, but over a long time, which calls for simple, durable faithfulness over that time. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And so even though God is at work, many days, just know this, okay? Many days will consist of brushing your teeth and going to work 
and coming home and making dinner and taking out the trash and doing the laundry. But it's as we do that, we plant seeds of obedience and faithfulness. And what do we find? Over time, over time we become strong and courageous. Over time we become, we have the ability to, to stand up in places where we never thought we'd be able to. Um, okay, another type of illustration I've tried to hold back from you, um, but I just have to use today. Um, some of you will know that after I finished college, I rode a bicycle all the way across America. Um, it, was, it was fun. It was really hard work, me and three friends. Um, here's the stats. It took 65 days. It was 2,509.1 miles of climbing mountains and through the rain and most mornings not wanting to get on the bike. But here's the weird thing. Uh, we finished near Seattle, and uh, I was like, I'm not riding my bike home. And so I flew home, and I had a window seat, and as I looked out the window, it struck me, wait a minute, I did that? I rode over that, I rode through that? Looking down at the Rocky Mountains, looking at the valleys and the peaks, you could see the distance between towns, between being able to get water, and I was thinking, I can't, that's what I did? Because my view most days, all I could see, all I could see any day was the few feet of pavement in front of me. All I could see was the detail of the trees, the bark on the trees. All I could do was smell the roadkill as I slowly <laughs> rode uphill past it. And as I labored up each hill and mountain and suffered under the hot sun and, and shivered under the rain, all I did, all I could do in that moment was just turn the pedals one more time. One more time. Sometimes literally telling myself, just keep spinning. Just one more crank on the pedals. And now as I'm sitting in the airplane looking out the window from 30,000 feet, I actually saw for the first time what all of that added up to. Now, you might never get to see this side of heaven what your long obedience in the same direction adds up to. In fact, most of you probably won't. But I promise you, if you obey the word of God day by day by day by day by day, like Joshua, your long obedience will add up to something glorious. And you might never get to see it in this lifetime. Moses never got to Okay, that leads to our final point, very briefly. First, those who stand against God are restless. Second, those who stand with God find poise and confidence. And then point three, and in the end are given rest. Look, just look at the final verse with me, verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Then the land had rest from war. Years of conquest, and then finally the land had rest from war. And notice how careful, though, the author is to say it was the land that had rest from war, but not the people. 
And this is because this is yet another pointer to the greater Joshua in Hebrew, Yeshua, in Greek, Jesus. What Joshua couldn't do, Jesus did. You see, our Joshua here in the Old Testament, he couldn't give the people rest. And you read the rest of the Old Testament and his restlessness, you find people, God's people, standing up in opposition to him and they are restless. But when you get to the New Testament, when you get to the Gospels and you meet Jesus Christ, God the Son, the greater Joshua, who comes to establish his kingdom, and he walks in perfect obedience to his father his entire life. Do you know what he said about rest? This is actually how we started the service. Do you remember that? He says, come to me, you who are weary in the land. And you who are heavily burdened by the conflict and restlessness of life and all your weakness and brokenness, come to me and I will give you what? Rest. And so listen, my friends, wherever you are in this conflict, whatever your struggle may be, however weak you may feel, however much you may have rejected God over the years, Whatever tomorrow holds for you in whatever part of this city or world, wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you study, wherever you play, there is only one place in all the universe, in heaven and on earth, where you can truly find this rest. And it is in Jesus Christ, who is the greater Joshua, the one, Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, the only one who can bring rest for our souls. And do you know him? Do you know? Listen, he who was obedient to the point of death on a cross. He who was buried in a tomb. He who was raised from the dead and given the name that is above every name and exalted to the highest place where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And are you willing to bow your knee to him? Are you willing to confess with your tongue that he is Lord? Because if you are, and if you do, he will use every resource that he has to give you rest. Rest from your restlessness. Now, where we're going after this in the series is, it'll be strange next week. We're going to do like, I don't know, 11 chapters all at once or something. I want to leave you with a final application before we get into that. Because what I want to do is take a step back on this chapter, really any chapter thus far in the book of Joshua. And I want to think about what God has asked Joshua to do. And think about how easy... It would have been for Joshua to say, how tempting it would have been for him to say, not now, Lord, not yet. Now, had he said that, had he given in, he wouldn't have, ex- have experienced God's rest. Instead, he would have been restless. Probably wandered the desert for another 40 years like the previous generation. 
And instead, what I want you to think about is the immediacy of his obedience at every turn. Little by little, day by day, he obeys, and his obedience is standing alongside the Lord, standing with him, fills him with a poise and a confidence, and in the end, he receives rest. So where are you saying to the Lord, not now, not yet? Are you holding off on obeying the Lord in some way? Are you holding off on even becoming a Christian for some reason? Where are you saying, not now, not yet? And what if you said, okay, Lord, I'll follow. Okay, Lord, I'll obey, but in your strength, not mine. What would happen? What would happen? We know what would happen. You'll find strength, and in the end, you'll be given rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened. And I'll give you rest. Let's come to him. Lord, we come to you in our weakness, in our restlessness, in our brokenness. And we ask you for rest. In the name of the one who is the greater Joshua, the fully obedient one, Jesus Christ. Amen.